I just wanted to thank uh, Brad for the opportunity to uh, continue his series on the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms in particular, and uh, so we're going to look at Psalm 2 today. I'm going to put on my reading glasses and uh, hopefully not mess up my microphone. But I want to read through uh, Psalm 2 with you, and I'm going to read, it, it really breaks down nicely into four stanzas of three verses each, and I'm going to read the first stanza and at the end of each stanza, I would like for you to respond. We're doing a little responsive reading that way. I would like for you to respond, if you choose to, with this response. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you remember that? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So let's start with the first stanza, the first three verses of Psalm 2. Before we do that, let's just pray. Father, your word speaks to us so clearly, both in the Old and New Testament, of the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are here to worship you, to lift up your name, and we're so glad to see your name even in the Old Testament scriptures, and as we look into Psalm 2, we're going to see something that we can just focus on, our faith can be focused on the, the knowledge that God has put his king, his anointed king, on the throne forever and ever. Uh, help us to worship you in truth as we go through this uh, sermon today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read the first three verses, and you're going to respond at the end of the first three verses with, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Very good. Why are the nations in an uproar? I'm reading from the New American Standard 1995 version. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I told my wife I'm going to choke up here sometime during the sermon. I didn't think it would be this soon. Thank you, that, that was inspiring. Four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord, sorry. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. 
For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Well, uh, neither of the first two psalms are identified as you look in the scriptures and uh, as to who the author was. Uh, so when we look into the New Testament, we find that the, uh, the New Testament uh, book of Acts, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, they, the uh, apostles attribute the authorship to King David. Uh, it says, by, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why were the nations insolent and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So the Old Testament tells us that David was the author of this psalm. I, I've subtitled this sermon, Your Arms Are Too Short to Box with God. Um, Pastor Tom told, uh, in one of my favorite all-time sermons, he told of his trip to Sweden where he was doing some evangelistic work, and he was sitting in a uh, park in Sweden and uh, just visiting with people as they would come by and sit down, and uh, a big old burly uh, Texan who was a businessman in Sweden and had his twin boys with him, they were on the swings, and the, the man sat down, and immediately began lambasting Christians and Christianity in general. And I, he, he was using swear words, and he was just anti-Christian. And he went on and on and on and on, and then finally he turned to Tom and he says, so what do you do? <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. Oh, well then you're going to want to argue with me. Tom said, no, your argument's with God, and your arms are too short to box with God. And, and that relationship blossomed over the next few days. It's, uh, he brought his sons back. Uh, Tom, even at one time, was carrying his kids on, one of his kids on his shoulders. And um, he, he invited him to come to church. He said, no, I won't be coming to church, but thanks anyway. And uh, the next Sunday... There he was. <laughs> there he was in church with his twins, and, uh, and they developed a, a, a nice relationship, and he left that with, with the church as, as he went away back to the United States. I think that church continued to reach out to him. I don't know where that went. Uh, I haven't heard that part of the story. Um, but the first part of Psalm 2 is a description of, it could have been written today. It could have been written and printed in the newspaper today. Man shakes its fist in his fist in God's face and said, I'm not going to be bound by your cords or your yoke or your rules. Can't, I mean, are you like me? It's hard to even watch TV anymore. It's hard to even listen to the radio anymore. I turn on Christian radio and it's some guy complaining about politics. And I was like, that's not what I want to hear. But that's our world. Francis Schaeffer, uh, who's been gone for quite a while now, was a, a marvelous intellect Christian man. He grew up in a liberal church and decided he was going to either be an atheist or an agnostic. And so he decided to be an agnostic. 
And he started reading the scriptures, and just from reading the scriptures, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And uh, he was very famous throughout the world. And he has written several, a number of books. One of the books uh, has to do with tracing the decline of truth. It started in Europe in the late 1800s, in the United States in about 1935. What even unbelievers and, and atheists and, and pagans acknowledged as truth and falsehood, for whatever reason, it was just part of what we all believed. This is true, this is good, this is bad, started to deteriorate. deteriorate and it started in the philosophy departments of the universities. It moved into the um, music and arts. Every element of education, every element of our society uh, started to reject truth. And so you see a, a change in uh, the attitudes in academia, and you see it in the art. Um, instead of a uh, Norman Rockwell idea, it was undistinguishable. There's no rhyme or reason to it, and that's good art. Um, in music, a lot of music became that way. It was, it was very disharmony, and the less structure, the less normalcy there was, that was to be desired, and it is continuing today. We see truth being rejected. We see people shaking their fist in the face of God and saying, I'm not going to be bound by your rules. Don't we? At least I see that. And we're going to find out what God's response is to all of that. Psalm 2 is uh, uh, kind of a follow-up of, of the thought process, is a little bit of a follow-up, and that's the Holy Spirit you know, leading the, the authors. When you look at the end of uh, Psalm 1 that uh, Brad talked about last week, you, you see these words. He talks about the righteous, and then he says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And here's our tie-in. But the way of the wicked will perish. The truth of Psalm 1 carries over into Psalm 2. What, what is the way of the wicked? The kings of the earth take their stand and they counsel together, they conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Cast away their cords from us. That's the way of the wicked. The way of the person who refuses to be under God's authority. It's the path that all take uh, who turn and acknowledge who don't turn and acknowledge the sovereign Lord. We see this kind of person throughout the Old and New Testament. We see it today, as I just said. In verse 1, the psalmist actually says, Why? Why are the nations in an uproar? I'll tell you why. They have no fear of the Lord. They have no interest in the truths of Job 28.28, Proverbs 1.7, and Proverbs 9.10. All of those verses say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They don't believe that at all. 
The fear and reverent awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, the lack of fear is the beginning of folly and deceit and ultimate ruin. This has been true since the time of Babel in Genesis 11. You remember the story where they were going to build a tower and build it right up to God so they could shake their fist at him. Well, how did that work for him? Not too good. But if you access social media on your phone or your tablet or computer, even for a couple hours a day, I guarantee that you have seen inappropriate words 50 to 100 times, that you've seen godless people doing godless things dozens of times on your phone, and I'm not even talking about pornography. Pornography is on millions of websites generating over $100 billion in annual revenue, and it's increasing exponentially. The world is shaking its fist in the face of God. Their struggle against the Lord and His anointed is described as a vain thing. A vain thing. What's a vain thing? A vain thing is a thing that is never going to win. It's useless. It's endless. It has no point. It's pointless. They struggle and fight all they might, but it's a vain thing. Because their arms are too short to box with God. But does that stop them? Does that stop Satan? Satan knows his fate, but does that stop him? No. They struggle and plot and scheme and strain against God in a useless and pointless endeavor. Let us break their bonds, they say. Let us... Tear off their cords. So so to this person who is godless, God is a bond bringer. It's so far from the truth. He's not a bond bringer. He's a bondage breaker. What they don't, what they call freedom is bondage. And God is the bondage breaker. The godless person thinks that their freedom is being restricted rather than having freedom within God's plan. The loving scriptural boundaries of godly living which guard our hearts and our minds and protect us from evil are to the rebellious sinner an intolerable restriction on their individual freedom to live without limits. And we see that all around us. This attitude is just clearly spiritual ignorance. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From the law of sin and death. That's truth. Charles Spurgeon said, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke, or do we wish to cast it from us? Matthew eleven twenty eight and third through thirty, Jesus says, "Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. By taking his yoke upon you, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, as they shake their fist at God, what is God doing? He laughs. In that stanza, number two, there are four descriptions of God's attitude, and they are increasing in severity. He laughs. He sits in heaven and laughs at them. He scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. James Montgomery Boyce said, God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial fortress wall, counting the enemy and fretting about whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this human challenge to his kingdom. He does not even rise from where he's sitting. He simply laughs at these great imbeciles. This derisive laughter of God is the comfort of all who love righteousness. I was going to tell you, you know, in today's uh, news, in today's world, there apparently are all different kinds of people. All different kinds of people. What do you want to be? You can be that. Really? There's all different kinds of people. You can't even count how many different kinds of people there are, but I'm telling you what the God, the Word of God says, there are only two kinds of people. I know what you're thinking. That's not what I'm thinking. There are only two kinds of people. You're either righteous or you're wicked. And that's a strong word. The righteous are righteous because of what Christ has done for them. The wicked have refused the salvation of Christ. But we are sitting right here either righteous through Christ, and we'll talk more about that, or we are part of the wicked. We have no neutral parties. There is nobody who says, well, I'm kind of neutral on that. Sorry. Through the sin nature that we are born with, we are part of the wicked until we choose Christ. There is nobody who can say, well, I'm D, none of the above. That doesn't work either. We are either in the righteous or we are among the wicked. The Lord scoffs at them. He speaks in his anger and he terrifies them in his fury. He laughs in heaven, but he doesn't just laugh. Before he acts against defiant mankind, Psalm 1 says, the wicked are like chaff which the wind blows away. He could just go, and they would be gone. He could. He's very capable of it, and he has every reason and every right to do that, but he doesn't. He says, before he acts against defiant mankind, he says, in anger and fury, this, I have put my king on the hill, on Zion. He talks to the kings. He talks to them. He warns them, and we're going to go into the next stanza with the warning. The warning is, I will, well, the first thing is the, the anointed speaks, and he says, I have been begotten by the Father, 
And he said to me, ask of me and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. He says, you will break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. That is Jesus Christ. The, when it says, my anointed, that word is uh, the Messiah. The Septuagint calls it the Christ. And we know that Jesus is the Christ. So here we are in the middle of the Old Testament, and the, the reference is to Jesus Christ. They don't know that. They know of the Messiah. And uh, as we look into the early part of the New Testament, even his disciples had an idea of what the Messiah was like. And part of it is this right here. Do homage to the Son. It's in the, the verses 10 through 12. He says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warnings, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in, refuge in him. This was part of the idea that they had from the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, that he was going to come with a sword, that he was going to come to conquer in a physical way, in a military way. And wasn't that a wonderful idea uh, for them to think the Romans are dominating us and the Messiah is here to do away with the Romans? But they forgot to read Isaiah 53, the lowly servant, the humble Messiah. And, and when we think of the Old Testament prophets um, looking into the future, I think that they could be described as looking through a telescope at a distant event. And when you look through a telescope and you see something five miles away, and you see something six miles away, through the telescope, they kind of look side by side. So a lot of the Old Testament uh, prophecies about the Messiah look like these descriptions are side by side, but what they don't see from that vantage point, and I'm probably going to get a call from my seminary professor, but they don't see that these are sub subsequent to each other. The first coming of Christ, the, the incarnation of Christ, and then the separate second coming of Christ. And so there was a lack of understanding that those are two different events. So um, what, we, what we really see here is um, a description of the second coming of Christ. I don't know what that's doing. Hopefully it's working. For his wrath may soon be kindled. What did I do? Is, is certainly Christ's prerogative in his second coming, it says, well, that's the end of my notes. Well, it says in Revelation, he will come and the nations will be under his rule. Revelation 11.15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The sound of the hallelujah chorus comes to my mind. 
He shall reign forever and ever. You shall break them with the rod of iron is clearly a reference to Revelation 2.27, the second coming of Christ. And he shall rule them with the rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. The Lord's anointed in such power over the nations has such power over the nations that they are like clay pots that he can shatter with a blow from his rod of iron. That's what proves the foolishness and vainness of the defiance of the Lord. But God, in his love and mercy, offers a warning and offers a chance to repent, and that's the final stanza. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. And it ends the way Psalm 1 begins. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. It ends with, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So as Psalm 1 begins, Psalm 2 ends. As Psalm 2 ends, Psalm, as Psalm 1 ends, Psalm 2 begins describing the way of the wicked. There's a great tie-in between those two psalms. And they are the double door opening to the rest of the Psalter. All of the psalms, that was the Old Testament hymn book. And those two psalms open up, and the rest of the psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament and the hymn book for many of the songs we sing as well. The psalmist gives a chance for repentance. The Lord gives a chance for the repentance of those who have opposed him. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Those who defy God are broken like clay pots, but those who depend on him are blessed beyond measure. He leaves this choice with every one of us who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Do you want to be eternally broken and lost? Or eternally loved and blessed? I want to uh, follow that up with another outline. You know, when you're ADD like I am, you've got four different introductions and seven different sermons so I want to I don't even know what time I'm supposed to quit I told I asked Angie I have an hour and a half don't I oh okay I thought there was a countdown up there that I would follow and I keep looking and oh it's just telling me what time it is and I don't know when I'm supposed to quit so Psalm 2 is a great outline for sharing the gospel so let's look at stanza one again if you know what the Romans road is, uh, that's one of the many ways we can share the gospel, but it, it starts with the proposition that there is none of us who are righteous. Remember, we have the righteous, we have the wicked. None of us are righteous, apart from Christ, of course. Romans 3.12, or uh, Genesis 6.12 says, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. 
And Romans 3, 12 and 14 through 18 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Tom Dwork, great teacher. He said, all is interpreted like this. All. <laughs> all means all, and that's all that it means. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Remember the vain struggling against the, the Lord? It's useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Psalm 2, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Isn't it wonderful how the Holy Spirit continues that theme in Romans? In Romans 3.23, we all know it, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now if we move to stanza 2, so the first stanza stands for the proposition that we all are sinful. And there's no way we're going to make our way to heaven no, no way we're going to be saved from our sin in and of ourselves. Stanza 2 says that there is one who can save us from our sin. Against the high priest asked Jesus, again, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Beloved, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Acts 5.39 said of Jesus by the apostles, or said of Jesus' apostles by Gamaliel, who gave advice to the Pharisees about what to do with these disciples. They, they arrested them, put them in prison, and suddenly, even though the prison doors were locked, they were gone. And they found him in the temple because the Holy Spirit said, go to the temple and preach the gospel. So they, they look in the jail. No doors are open. No doors are broken. And they're gone. And they go and find them in the temple preaching. So they grab them again and they bring them back. And the council's trying to decide, I think we should just kill them all. And Gamaliel says to them, if this is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Jesus is the Messiah. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we have established a sinful nature. We have established that there is a Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Loud voices in heaven said, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Can't get that out of my head. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. These are very familiar verses to you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I hope that if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that I'm not saying them too fast. God demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me. Even while I was still a sinner, he died for me and you. So we have a Savior. 
We are sinful and need a Savior. We have a Savior. Uh, stanza number three and stanza number four says, God in mercy offers all sinners an opportunity to repent and worship the Son. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Romans 2, 9 and 10. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through our works. Oh, I might have misread that. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says, and I'm, I don't have it written down here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. John 3.16 Whoever believes in him uh, will not perish. It's God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's our begotten son, the begotten anointed. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You can use that outline to share the gospel message. And uh, we see it so often in the New Testament as well. I, uh, I will wrap this up because I suppose I'm supposed to wrap this up. My faith is summed up wonderfully by the words of a song that I can't get out of my head. Not the Hallelujah Chorus. I wouldn't want to sing that for you. It wouldn't work well. But I will say the words to the song in Christ alone. Wonderfully written by Keith and Kristen Getty and Alison Krauss marvelous musicians and here's where I told my wife I'll probably choke up in Christ alone my hope is found he's my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love I probably have to pay about three dollars wherever Troy is probably have to pay about three dollars to read this out loud I'll be glad to do that what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God, in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. 
There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, on you, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Now, even with reading glasses, I can't see what I'm reading. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man, no shaking of the fist at God can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Not too many years ago, I developed a aortic aneurysm. Uh, for a lot of people, it's sudden death. For me, it was not a burst. It was a leaking of blood. Went to the hospital. Doctor analyzed it immediately as a giant aneurysm and uh, was able to successfully put in a stent. He said, if the stent won't work, I'll have to do surgery and you have a one in four chance of surviving that. So I prayed for a stent. Uh, they prepped me for surgery. They brought the stent material in from Des Moines, Iowa. That took a few hours, I suppose. And uh, they put me under and when I was waking up, I, uh, the, the guy next to me who was not quite awake was snoring very loud. <laughs> and I was starting to come back to a little bit of reality. And I opened my eyes and laying on the recovery bed, I looked up and one of my son's head was leaning over me like this. And he said, well, Dad, are you disappointed to see our faces? <laughs> yeah, kind of. I said, no, son, it was a win-win for me. My confidence is in Jesus Christ, not myself, not the doctor, but in Jesus Christ and what he has done to save my soul. I pray that you have done that, or if you have not, that you'll talk to me or talk to one of the pastors or elders about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful thing to be able to have full confidence in you and in your Son that we are saved from our sinful nature, that we have exchanged our sinful nature through your strength, through your power, through your Son's death. We have exchanged our sinful nature for his righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become righteous through him. Praise your name. Thank you for your love and mercy and grace showered upon us in that way. In Christ's name, amen.